great evening so far in our classes. Let's just come before our God. God, we just come before you this evening, God. And we just ask that you just commune with us, that you just meet with us here, Lord Father. We are yours. may be seated. Praise his name. Tonight we celebrate with Dr. Tom King. Um, most of you know he has been working on a commentary on the book of Leviticus. He told me today for seven years. And uh, I think we all understand that if you've ever tried to weed through Leviticus. Um, I hold in my hand tonight um, the framed book cover sent to Dr. King from the Nazarene Publishing House and Beacon Hill Press. And it is signed by Bonnie Perry, who is the director of Beacon Hill Press. And uh, it says, Tom, thank you. May the Lord be glorified. And uh, we celebrate with Dr. King tonight, and I would like for him to come at this time and, and receive this and for you to show your appreciation for him. Now, we're... Thursday afternoon uh, from 3.30 to 5, we will have a book signing in the library. And then after chapel on Thursday night, we will also have a book signing. And the bookstore has made uh, the books available uh, at a special price just for the book signing. So if you care and want one of these, and I, I hope you will, in fact, I hope you build the whole collection uh, I can tell you that it's been a lot of years. I don't know, Dan, Tom, you might know the last time the Beacon Hill series was revived. Revised. I mean, it's been since I was in college. <laughs> and that was a long, long time ago. But um, we'll make these books available to you at this special price, and I wish I could... And 1775. You want to throw in an extra quarter, then Dr. King can take his wife out for a <laughs> cup of ice cream after the. After the, uh, let me just say one other thing. Then we want to hear the word tonight. Um, we are blessed here. Uh, I, I don't. I don't believe there's a, another Nazarene college in the United States that can say that 100% of their Bible and theology faculty wrote a commentary for this series. But we can. But we can. And of course, Dr. Powers wrote First and Second Peter and Jude. And uh, we're, I, I hope you know how privileged you are to sit in their class and hear them teach the word and at times preach the word. They are scholars 
But more than that, they are men of the word and men of God. So let's welcome Dr. King tonight to come and share the word. Thank you, President Graves. So what does the face of God look like? Ever wonder? I've always enjoyed looking at paintings and drawings which depict God or Jesus, and I'm always impressed by the face of God. As a child, I was disappointed when people told me, no one really knows what God looks like. These are all just guesses on how the face of God really looks. The same disappointment came over me with Hollywood's attempts at portraying God. In the movie Star Trek V, the crew of the Enterprise encounter a being they thought might be God, and this being even presented himself in multiple forms with different faces to suit all their expectations. But we all knew something was wrong. Just like Captain Kirk, we all knew something was wrong when this God demanded to take the Enterprise in order to travel through the universe. We asked the same question Kirk did. Why does God need a starship? In another older movie, George Burns played the role of God. That certainly did not inspire for me the sound or look of God. Charlton Heston wasn't bad, except, of course, that was Moses, not God. More recently, Jim Caviezel portrayed Jesus in The Passion. But after Person of Interest, that just sort of compromised that whole look for Christ for me. Even I played the role of Jesus in a church Easter drama for a couple of years, but no, looking in the mirror does not inspire the face of God for me. In the Bible, we're told that when Moses asked to see God's glory, we're told that no one could look on the face of God and live. The priests who entered the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement were instructed that they had to make a cloud of incense in order to hide the face of God, lest they see God and die. Despite such warnings, our curiosity drives our desire to see the face of God. And still, the best place to find the face of God is to begin with God's revelation in the Bible. The text for our message tonight reveals an important aspect of how the face of God might actually be seen and reflected. Genesis chapter 32. Beginning at verse 24. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, 
But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. One person who claimed to have seen the face of God is this patriarch Jacob whose story is found here in the book of Genesis. We're first introduced to Jacob through the account of his birth. He's born the second of twin boys, and he is delivered with his hand gripping his older brother's heel. From the beginning, his actions reflect the meaning of his name, Jacob, one who attacks at the heel, one who supplants, overreacher, deceitful one. When Jacob and his brother Esau are older, Jacob indeed exploits Esau during a moment of weakness and persuades Esau to sell him his birthright as the firstborn son. The birthright traditionally provides a son with the leadership of the family and a double portion of the inheritance. The next time we encounter the two brothers, their father Isaac is old and near death. It is the time when Isaac decides to impart his blessing on his eldest son, Esau. And once again, Jacob takes advantage of the situation. He tricks his father by impersonating Esau, and Jacob steals his older brother's blessing. Jacob's actions are described for us through the words of brother Esau and father Isaac. Isaac explains to Esau, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau then complains, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and look, now he has taken away my blessing. Esau begs for whatever blessing his father has left. And he is granted a blessing, but it's one which implies a life without plenty and a life as servant to his younger brother who has supplanted him. And at this point in the biblical text, Esau says to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Due to the threat from his angry brother, Jacob moved away up north to Haran, to the house of his mother's brother, to his uncle's home. And along the way, Jacob spent the night at Bethel and had a dream. And in this dream, God appeared and repeated to Jacob the promises of land and descendants, which reflected God's covenant with his grandfather, Abraham. In addition, God promised to be with Jacob, promised to provide for him and bring him back to his homeland, but once again, Jacob's character of self-preservation and scheming emerges because Jacob responds to God with a conditional vow. He says to God, if you will take care of me, if you will indeed provide for me and bring me back safely, then 
you will be my God. It seems quite bold to follow a divine appearance from Almighty God in which God promises to care for you, to follow that with a vow which serves to test that promise and withhold full allegiance until after God has delivered. But that's Jacob, the trickster, the deceiver, the schemer. While in Haran, Jacob, the trickster, seems to finally meet his match. Uncle Laban craftily tricks Jacob into marrying his older daughter, Leah, after they had agreed he was supposed to marry the younger daughter, Rachel, whom Jacob had loved. Jacob served Laban for seven years in order to marry Rachel, but was deceitfully given Leah instead. And so Jacob had to work an additional seven years in order to marry his love, Rachel. Uncle Laban justified his actions by explaining that according to custom, I can't marry off the younger daughter before the older. And as a result, Laban not only was able to marry off two daughters, but he also gained an additional seven years of service from Jacob. So at this point, the battle of tricksters is underway. During Jacob's years of service, Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times, the Bible tells us. Meanwhile, Jacob devises a method of causing the stronger sheep and goats to breed striped, speckled, and spotted offspring, which Laban agreed would all belong to Jacob. Thereby, Jacob strengthened his own flocks while Laban's were left with mere feeble animals. Well, after 20 years of this little battle, Jacob had enough. He took his two wives, his children, his flocks, his possessions, and returned to the land of Canaan. And it's at this point in his life that the trickster Jacob is finally confronted with more than his scheming mind could escape. Like all of us at some point, Jacob learns he can't connive his way out of everything. He's not completely self-sufficient, and he must learn to function in relationship to God. As Jacob approached the land of his birth, he sent messengers ahead to his brother Esau. Now imagine, after 20 years the grudge which Esau carried against his brother for stealing his birthright and blessing is likely now at the point of morbid hatred. When Jacob had left Canaan years before, Esau was already planning to kill Jacob. And by now the struggles of making his way through life without the extra inheritance he expected and under more of a curse than a blessing from their father. Esau is likely planning to torture as well as kill his brother Jacob, the deceiver and thief. And so after 20 years, Jacob sends a message. In order to discover Esau's state of mind, and the message is clearly a humble greeting seeking to find favor in the eyes of brother Esau. Recognizing this critical point in the story, we eagerly anticipate Esau's response. The messengers bring back news that Esau is coming, and he's bringing 400 men with him. 
it seems clear Esau's on the warpath, ready to finally deal vengeance against his evil young brother. Jacob panics, and he prepares to meet this face of wrath in his older brother Esau. Once more, Jacob relies on his cunning, and he begins to devise a plan to survive his brother's anger. He divides up his people and his flocks and his herds and his camels into two companies and reasons that if Esau destroys one group, perhaps the other may escape. And then Jacob does what most humans do in a time of life-threatening crisis. He cries out to God. Jacob reminded God, in case he forgot, that God had told him to run to Canaan, and God promised him that he would take care of him. Jacob reminded God of the covenant promise of descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. Jacob cried out to God to deliver him from the hand of Esau, quote, who may come and kill us all, mothers with the children. And then Jacob continued to devise his own means of surviving Esau. He divided up his servants and goats and sheep and camels and cattle and donkeys into a number of droves, and he sent them in waves toward Esau. And he gave instructions to the servants in each group, telling them to explain to Esau that all these are gifts to Esau. And Jacob reasoned within his mind, I may appease him with all these presents that go ahead of me. And afterward, I'll see his face. Perhaps he'll accept me. That statement in verse 20 of Genesis 32 contains an interesting wordplay using the term that is translated face. The Hebrew term which translates face is often used to simply identify someone's presence. Thus, what literally might be translated to go before my face simply means to go before me, to go in front of me. But by making use of this idiom, the writer packs Jacob's statement in verse 20 with four instances of this term face. So a literal rendering of Genesis 32:20 might read like this. I shall pacify his face with the gift that goes before my face, and afterward I will see his face, and perhaps he will lift up my face. The wordplay and the emphasis on this term face heightens the tension of the upcoming encounter between Jacob and Esau. When they meet, what will Esau's face look like? The story clearly anticipates a face of anger and vengeance. But before our curiosity and anxiety are addressed, we have to wait through one more event before we read of the encounter that Jacob has with the face of his brother. The night before their meeting, Jacob, probably pronounced Yaakov, is alone on one side of the river Yabok. The inspired text becomes intentionally mysterious and vague in describing this event. 
the account begins with another word play, this time in relation to Jacob's name and the name of the river at which he is located. The name of the river begins with the same initial, but otherwise seems to be the reverse of the letters of Yaakov. It is Yabok. It's dark at night, and Yaakov is alone at the river Yavok. And the text tells us that a man wrestled with Jacob all night. The Hebrew verb for wrestle also sounds like Jacob's name. It's pronounced avak. Thus we have Yaakov engaged in avak at the Yavok. The man could not prevail against Jacob the text tells us, and yet he's able to touch or strike him on the hip and put it out of joint. Consistent with Jacob's character as one who seeks to seize blessings, Jacob grabs this man and refuses to let go unless he blesses Jacob. And the mystery is heightened when the man changes Jacob's name to Israel and claims that Jacob has now striven with God and man and prevailed. And next, the man does indeed bless Jacob. And finally, Jacob makes the incredible statement in verse 30 of Genesis 32. He says, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. He says this after naming the place Peniel, which means face of God. Somehow, sometime during this mysterious wrestling match in the dark of night next to the river Yabok, Jacob starts out grappling with a man and ends up claiming to have seen God. Once again, the term face overwhelms us with three appearances in one little verse. Jacob called the place face of God, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. Jacob expected to die, but survived the face of God. The question for him now remains, will Jacob survive his encounter with the face of brother Esau? Once again, Jacob divides what he has left. Most of the possessions have already been sent ahead to be given to Esau. Now he divides his own children among their four mothers. He places the two maids and their children in the lead, and then Leah with her children, and finally Rachel and her boy Joseph, last of all. But this time, Jacob does something uncharacteristic. Instead of hiding behind all of those groups, Jacob goes out ahead of them, placing himself before Esau and Esau's 400 men. The dreaded encounter has finally arrived. Jacob bows to the ground seven times in humility and submission. And as we follow the story, we expect to read that Esau is the subject of such verbs as strike, kick, stab, and kill. Not only has Esau been victim to Jacob's deceit, which denied Esau's full heritage and his life blessing, but we learn later in the text that Esau becomes the ancestor of Edom, a nation identified through history as an enemy of Israel.
We know that Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom are destined to be lifelong enemies like Arabs and Jews, Christians and Muslims, Protestants and Catholics, Palestinians and Israelis. This is one moment in a global history of violence which seeks to reflect the destiny of these two brothers. So let's read the encounter from the biblical text. Chapter 33 of Genesis, beginning at verse 1. Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God. I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. In Genesis 33, 4, Esau is indeed the subject of a series of verbs. But they're not the verbs anticipated by the story. Esau ran, embraced, hugged, and kissed Jacob. And they wept. Here we encounter one of the greatest reunions in the Bible. The two brothers reunite with an overwhelming image of love and fellowship. Esau turns down all the gifts which Jacob had sent ahead, stating he already has enough and that his brother should keep them for himself. Recall back in Genesis 32, 20, Jacob said to himself he hoped to appease Esau with the gift or present which he was sending before him. And here in Genesis 33.10, Jacob speaks to Esau and presses him to accept this gift or present from his hand. In both of those verses, the Hebrew term mincha is translated gift or present. But in the next verse, Genesis 33.11, in which Jacob further appeals to Esau to accept his gift, the Hebrew term is changed from mincha to barakah. This is the word for blessing. The story has come full circle. Jacob now seeks to return a form of the blessing he stole from his brother years before. 
somehow the character of Jacob was transformed on that mysterious night in which he wrestled with a man, or was it God? The conniver, trickster, deceiver has come to a point of surrender and seeks to give up and to return blessings rather than take them. Jacob is not the only character who appears transformed in this account. Esau, who spoke death threats against his brothers years before, has now embraced Jacob with love and forgiveness. Jacob recognizes this grace as the text once again highlights the term face. In verse 10 of Genesis 33, Jacob literally says to Esau, I see your face as seeing the face of God. We finally discover the answer to the question, what will the face of Esau look like? Amazingly, Jacob tells us, it looks like the face of God. What is it in Esau that looks like the face of God? The context clearly indicates it is the forgiveness, the reconciliation, which reflects God's face. Jacob, who claimed to have seen God face to face the very night before in a wrestling match, now recognizes that face of God in his loving, forgiving brother. It seems our global history of violence between brothers should not be passing blame onto the original relationship of Jacob and Esau. Instead, our world needs to follow their witness of forgiveness and reconciliation. This biblical tale of two brothers always reminds me of my own relationship with my younger brother. In our case, the roles were somewhat reversed. In our childhood years, I was one who cruelly taunted and took advantage of my younger sibling. Because of my actions, our relationship was distant and strained and painful. Nevertheless, my younger brother consistently held me in high esteem. He recently called me one of his heroes in a gracious note of tribute. Such love and respect I do not deserve. My brother's response of love and grace restored our relationship, and it has blessed me with years of great joy and fellowship with him through our young adult and adult lives. His expression of grace and forgiveness mean the world to me. And as a result, like Jacob, I see in my brother's face the face of God. Esau is one of my heroes in the books of the Pentateuch. Over time, Esau took in the pain and heartache which his brother had imposed upon him, and he returned forgiveness and reconciliation. In doing so, Esau reflects the character of Christ. Despite our own forms of deceit and selfish ambition by which we have injured God and our brothers and sisters, Christ has not reacted against us with violence and wrath. 
but he has taken in the pain and the heartache of our sins to the point of dying on the cross on our behalf. And Christ runs and embraces and hugs and kisses us with love and reconciliation. Ultimately, Christ calls us to follow and join this work of forgiving and reconciling. We too are called to absorb whatever pain and heartache others may bring and return forgiveness and reconciliation. As we pursue such Christ-like character, consider the example of Esau. And may our faces reflect the face of God. Our Lord, we praise you for your gracious, gracious and reconciling and forgiving heart. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, live through us, and make your face shine through our faces. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.